Hey, Mike, I got a question for you. What's up, Sean? Do we have a website? Not only do we have a website, we're getting a new website as well. A new website? Oh, my gosh. You can find our show now at texaspodcast.fm. .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. So here's the plan, folks. We've got a new site, texaspodcast.fm. We're going to be going live soon. You'll find the site, new look, new feel, all the same great podcasts. You don't need to update your feed. You don't need to change anything right now. But uh, just check it out. How many cannon did they have scattered around Texas at the time? <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. In 1832, tensions between the agents of the government of Mexico and the Anglo colonists in Texas boiled over into conflict in one of the earliest sparks of the Texas Revolution. This week, we continue our look at the Anahuac disturbances. But first, what's your favorite Texas Science Museum? Well, I'm not certain that the museum itself is necessarily my favorite, but I always uh, love seeing the model of the solar system embedded in the, the sidewalk pavilion area in front of the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Um, it's pretty cool to, to stand, you know, like on the edge of the sun, which is too big to even fit, and then look way out at where the, the outer planets are, um, you know, many, many feet away. Um, that's also the museum where I learned how to make a mummy. There's some cool dinosaurs there at that museum. I can remember that. Well, mine is going to be the Pro Museum. Uh, it is in Dallas, and uh, it is a fantastic museum. We are members there, um, and our friend Joe from college works there. But uh, it would be great even if both of those were not true. So highly recommend you check out the Pro Museum in downtown Dallas. Does the Alamo count? Not as a science museum, uh, unfortunately. The science of the Alamo. I also love unless 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 um, we count uh, Texasology as science, <laughs> then perhaps the Alamo would qualify. The measure and study of Texas. So uh, I will tell you what you know. There's a lot of great museums I've been to in in science museums, but um, I want to give a shout out to the Interurban Rail Museum in Plano, Texas. Now, it's a small museum. doesn't have a lot there. But what they do have is really cool, and the staff that works there works really hard. They do a lot of um, things for the Plano ISD kids and some of the surrounding districts. And they actually have, uh, for those who don't know, and it'd be a great future episode, the Interurban Railroad was an electric rail system that ran at one point all the way from Denison, which is dangerously close to Oklahoma, all the way to Waco. <laughs> And uh, it was it was this amazing electric rail system that was there forever, and uh, it was how people moved around North Texas. And they have one of the original cars; it's been restored, and uh, you know it, it's it's really a, a cool place. And they have some neat science exhibits around electricity that they do do there. So there is, in fact, science there. So, Interurban Rail Museum, you can see uh, science, science and trains, industry, science. Last week, we covered the background to the brewing crisis between the Anglo colonies in Texas and the Mexican government after 1830. The Anglo colonists, with their expectations of natural rights and American-style democracy, were butting heads with the Mexican government 
that was growing concerned about the growth of such an independent-minded population. The ultimate result was the halting of immigration from the United States, increased Mexican military presence in Texas, and the imposition of tax duties on ships coming into Galveston Bay. The two men sent to enforce this policy, John Davis Bradburn and George Fisher, Americans in the service of the Mexican government, were ill-suited for such a task. Bradburn and 40 soldiers established a garrison in a town on October 26, 1830, on the mouth of the Trinity, at the old filibuster base called Perry's Point. They named the town Anahuac, which was an old Aztec word Bradburn had picked up when he was in Mexico. The location was chosen as a protected strategic point to prevent smuggling on the Trinity and the San Jacinto Rivers, as well as the Brazos River. Fisher, the tax collector, arrived in November 1831 to take care of tariffs and smuggling. Bradburn was also charged with preventing illegal immigration from the United States in accordance with the new law of April 6, 1830, which was designed to restrict Anglo-American settlement. The first trouble for Bradburn came in January of 1831 when a state-appointed land commissioner, Jose Francisco Madero, arrived to issue titles to the residents of the Lower Trinity who had settled prior to 1828. Although both the state and national governments had previously approved granting titles, Bradburn believed that the new law annulled these earlier grants. Bradburn represented the centralist administration, which believed in a strong central government and weaker states. Madero stood for the opposition, the state-oriented Federalists of northern Mexico. Bradburn arrested Madero, but the state authorities let him go, and Madero issued more than 50 titles to local residents before he left the area. Although Madero's actions were legal, it roused the ire of Bradburn and the Centralists, who saw it as a challenge to the national government's control of the area. Another crisis followed the return visit of General Manuel de Mier y Turan, the commandant of the eastern interior provinces, in November of 1831. Because he did not approve of Anglo-American lawyers practicing law without certification from Mexican authorities, he ordered Bradburn to inspect their licenses. Mir E. Turan also ordered an inspection of land titles. But the greatest offense, as far as the colonists were concerned, when George Fisher began to collect duties from all ships already in the Brazos River and Galveston Bay, and he did so retroactively. This arbitrary decision ticked off the Brazos captains, Several left the river without stopping for clearance at the mouth, where a small number of soldiers were garrisoned, and shots were exchanged between the ships and the troops. Further trouble stemmed from Anglo-American animosity against Bradburn and his troops, some of whom were former convicts sent there to do construction work to earn their freedom. At peak strength, Bradburn had fewer than 300 men under his command, both at Anahuac and at the fort built on the Brazos, Fort Velasco. And of these, probably less than 20 were convicts. But the Anglo neighbors blamed petty thievery in an attack against a woman to these prisoners. Bradburn also incorporated two or three runaway slaves from Louisiana into his garrison, and in accordance with the law that banned slavery and had no provision for returning escaped fla- and had no provision for returning escaped slaves to the U.S., blocked a slave catcher from recovering the Louisiana runaways. The slave catcher decided to hire a local lawyer to get his slaves back. And this is where one of the most famous Texans ever come into our story. This lawyer, a young William Barrett Travis and his law partner, Patrick Jack, were already engaged in something of a feud with Bradburn. 
They were among the group of lawyers that had had their licenses. <clears throat> they were among the lawyers that had their licenses inspected, and they certainly had an attitude of quote carrying their constitutions in their pockets. They antagonized Bradburn by starting an illegal civil militia to quote fight the Indians. Bradburn briefly incarcerated Jack for parading his militia around Anahuac. He released Jack when future Texas Ranger Robert Three-Legged Willie Williamson threatened to kill him if Bradburn did not release Jack. Later, Travis tried to trick Bradburn into releasing the runaway slaves. A man, maybe Travis, wrapped in a concealing cloak, delivered a note purportedly from a friend of Bradburn's warning that a force of people from Louisiana were on the way to recover the fugitives. When Bradburn realized that he had been given false information, he arrested Jack and Travis. He arrested Jack again along with Travis since they were the obvious culprits. Because there wasn't an adequate jail, Bradburn placed them in an empty brick kiln. The rest of the Anglo colonists up the Brazos Valley were infuriated. Hotheads organized a rescue force of around 200 men who reached Turtle Bayou, six miles north of Anahuac, on June 9, 1832. On their way, they captured Bradburn's entire cavalry force of 19 men and held them hostage, planning to exchange them for Travis and Jack and a couple of others that Bradburn had arrested. After a day of skirmishing, a prisoner exchange was arranged by the rebels, most of whom withdrew to Turtle Bayou, where they released the captured cavalrymen. When Bradburn discovered that not all the rebels had evacuated as they promised, he refused to release his prisoners and instead announced that he would attack the town. After a skirmish between the Mexican soldiers and the remaining rebels, the rebels fell back to Turtle Bayou to await the arrival of reinforcements. Henry Smith and John Austin, no relation to Stephen F., led a force of Texians to Brazoria on the Brazos to secure a cannon for use against the Mexican forces at Anahuac. How many cannon did they have scattered around Texas at the time? Uh, well, they loaded this cannon onto a merchant ship, which was also called the Brazoria, and they attempted to sail past the Mexican fort at Velasco on the mouth of the river. The garrison there was commanded by Colonel Domingo de Ugartequia, and he was ordered to prevent the passage of the vessel carrying the cannon. The Texan force was between 100 and 150. There were between 100 and 200 Mexicans in the fort. On the night of June 25th, there was a vicious fight between the Texian troops and their cannon-armed ship and the Mexican soldiers in the fort. Sources differ about the number of casualties, but a conservative estimate suggests that Texan casualties were seven killed and 14 wounded. Three of the 14 later died of their wounds. The Mexicans had five killed and 16 wounded. Ugartequia and his garrison were forced to surrender when they ran out of ammunition. The terms of surrender allowed Ugartequia to maintain the honors of war and return to Mexico aboard a ship furnished by the colonists. The final surrender took place in a camp at the mouth of the Brazos on June 29, 1832. The victorious force and their cannon set out to join forces with the other rebels at Turtle Bayou. As the battle was raging on, the rebels at Turtle Bayou composed and signed the Turtle Bayou Resolutions, which explained the rebellion against Bradburn was part of the reform movement of Federalist General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who had recently won a victory over administration forces at Tampico. They were not opposed to Mexico or his laws, but just the centralist government of Anastasio Bustamante. Santa Ana was the hero, and Bustamante was the villain in this story. The matter was resolved by Colonel José de las Piedras, 
Bradburn's immediate superior and a respected officer who had worked with Stephen Austin to quell the Fredonia revolt. He arrived from Nacogdoches, and he believed he was outnumbered and outgunned, and so he decided it would probably be best to see the rebels' point of view. On July 2, 1835, Piedras removed Bradburn and Fisher from their posts, and he released Travis, Jack, and the other Anglo-American prisoners. The prisoners returned to Anahuac, where they incited their remaining garrison to rebel against its centralist officers. A Federalist officer assumed command and within a month relocated the garrison to the Rio Grande. Further ramifications of the Federalist victories in Mexico impacted the key players in this drama. Piedras, a centralist at heart, didn't learn from Bradburn's mistakes and attempted to impose military order in another confrontation in late July. This was in Nacogdoches. There was another fight between Anglo militia and Mexican troops in the streets of that town and around the old stone fort on August 2nd. That night, Piedras tried to escape with his men under the cover of darkness, but were intercepted by another famous Texian, Jim Bowie. Piedras's men returned on him and surrendered to the Anglos. Piedras, still liked and respected personally, was released on the recommendation of Stephen F. Austin and returned to his family in Monterey. He would end up being killed in 1839, supporting the resurgent Bustamante regime as it once again battled Federalist forces in Tampico. Mier y Tehran, though a friend of Santa Ana, came off worse from the whole affair. Realizing his political fortunes were ruined, he took his own life in Tamaulipas in 1832, right around the same time as Bradburn and Fisher were being removed from command. Things settled down in Texas for a while. Santa Ana made some gracious proclamations about the loyalty and bravery of his Anglo-Texan supporters, and the restrictions were eased for a while. Merchants returned to Anahuac, and business continued without national tariffs, and the borders were once again opened. Anglo-American immigration exploded for the next three years, until 1835 when Santa Ana shifted centralist, and the government sent collectors and support troops back to Texas. Tensions would boil over again in Anahuac in the summer of 1835, and William Travis was again at the center of it. His seizure of the garrison there would be one of the causes of the Mexican crackdown on Texian militias and led directly to the Battle of Gonzales, which started the actual and final Texas Revolution. History wasn't done with the other two men at the center of the Anahuac disturbances, though. After Bradburn was relieved of command, he justifiably feared plots against his life. Travis himself allegedly tried to kill him when he got out of jail. He fled to New Orleans and then returned to the Rio Grande to continue the fight for the Centralist Army until its defeat in December 1832. He then lived in retirement at his home near Matamoros until 1836, when he was ordered against his wishes to join José de Urea's command as it invaded Texas. He reportedly accepted his orders with the request that he would not have to fight any of his old enemies, and he was posted at the port of Capano. Bradburn retreated back to Matamoros when Santa Ana was defeated, and he returned to his retirement. He died in Matamoros on April 20, 1842, and was buried in his ranch in Puertos Verdes in what is now Hidalgo County, Texas. His death was heralded in Texas papers, and to this day, when Bradburn is remembered, he's vilified as an incompetent and half-crazy tyrant, despite the fact that in many ways his actions were legal in accordance with the laws of Mexico. George Fisher had an even more remarkable second act in his relationship with Texas. Like Bradburn, Fisher fled Texas due to the threats on his life. 
He returned to Matamoros, where, from 1832 to 1835, he published the newspaper Mercurio del Puerto de Matamoros. Ironically, for someone with a reputation as a notorious centrist, by the end, his paper was considered too liberal for the taste of Mexican officials, and he was expelled from the country. In October 1835, Fisher was in New Orleans acting as commissary general and secretary for the anti-Santa Ana Tampico expedition, which happened around the same time as the Texas Revolution. In 1837, Fisher returned to Texas, now an independent republic, where he became a commission agent in Houston. It seems his past was forgotten, or at least the people who really hated him were dead, because he prospered in the new republic. He served as a justice of the peace in 1839, was admitted to the bar in 1840, and was a member of the City Houston Council in 1840. In 1843, he served as a major of the 2nd Brigade of the Texas Militia. He moved to California in 1851, where he served as a secretary to the Land Commission of the U.S. government. In 1856, he presented his library, papers, and correspondence to the state of Texas. He served in civic posts in San Francisco from 1860 to 1870, when he became the United States Consul to Greece. When the Harris County Historical Society was organized in 1870, Fisher sent its president a record of all his activities in Texas, an invaluable primary source of information from the lead-up to the Texas Revolution. Fisher died in San Francisco in 1873 and flags at all U.S. consulates around the world, flew at half-mast as a mark of respect. What a strange story. Yeah, yeah. So I love and cringe at the idea of of Steve, William Barrett Travis, this young, brash lawyer who's going to represent the slave catcher, who's going to get his slaves back, and they try to, they try to trick Bradburn into like, into leaving town yeah. so they can get the slaves, and well, it it would not know, be it would be funny if it wasn't you know slavery and human bondage. The life of the frontier lawyer is uh, a many splendored thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we we've we've seen that in the past in Texas. I'm I it you can only imagine how um, you know how do you how how do you practice law in a territory where uh, in a time where central government and uh, established courts and such are few and far between. I imagine there's a lot of improvisation uh, involved. Well, and then, and then when you either don't know about or don't care about the laws of the country that you're, you're practicing in that it probably makes it a little easier in some ways. You just, you know, make it up as you go. But uh, he was a hothead, that's for sure. Even even from the time he first got to Texas, I just I think like it's it's really interesting here. We kind of covered this a little bit from the other side when we did our um, episode on William Travis. Yeah, yeah, we did, we did, we touched on it a little bit, but well, it was a, it was know, a footnote the, in yeah. the Anahuac disturbances, and he was a real rabble rouser, but. It's, I mean, the, I can only imagine, like, what it was like to be there and to have, one, this very, the the chaos of the Mexican government at the time, and yeah. then this sort of, the brashness of these American um, immigrants that were now living there in this foreign country, but were just kind of like, hey, look, we're Americans, man, we, we know the Constitution, 
<laughs> I know my yeah, constitutional right. right, and it's like, yeah, you have this Mexican yeah. constitutional right. And as long as as long as uh, they thought Santa <laughs> Ana was on their side, he was like the next best thing to George Washington. You know, he yeah. was like, hey, that guy's great. I love Santa Ana. He's fantastic. Then three years later, that guy's the worst. That guy's Darth Vader. <laughs> he's the worst. <laughs> he's worse than King George. Let's. Well, that's, that's yeah, and I mean, it really is like, oh, this guy was not always. You, wait, you're like, wait, the guy in Santa Ana that we were told was like the enemy of Texas our whole life was once a friend of Texas and like a, you know, I don't, the, my mind is blown. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's like you said, you know, in Mexican, you know, Mexican government in the 1820s and 30s is like, is really like Texas weather. You just, you kind of got to just, you kind of got to stand there and wait for it to change because it's it's going to change really quick, uh, you know, and very fast. And things are going to, you know, up, you know, a, a year before, a few years before, Piedras was, everybody loved Piedras because he took our side against, you know, that Edwards, he was causing trouble and he and Piedras helped settle everything. And now he's like, oh, he's the enemy because he's, he's part of the centralist government and Whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, and in the fact that, you know, Bradburn was clearly not qualified to do what he did. Although, you know, there's, there's a lot of references to that. He did try to try to make concessions and smooth things over here and there, but he went about it so badly. And, and, and the fact is, is that, you know, they, they, they were coming in with, uh, orders that were going to be contrary to what the people of the area wanted. And then they, they implemented them badly. You know, Fisher had a reputation kind of as a crook or as a, as a con man. Uh, and Bradburn was autocratic and erratic. So, you know, there was, it was just like a, a lot of perfect storm situations all coming together. The amazing thing though is, is that at the end, there was not a Texas revolution that started in 1832. That's, that's what's remarkable to me about this is there was an actual big time fight. It was a battle. It's bloody. There was, there was conflict between the settlers and between the government. And yet at the end of it, Texas was still part of Mexico. The Texans were still Mexicans. Uh, and there would be another two years before, you know, the root of the problem is still there, but it would be another two, three years, two to three years before the, the problems boil over into the final conflict. Yeah, no, it is like, oh, they had a cannon and they were shooting at, at the government officials and this wasn't a revolution? That's kind of crazy. So, and then I, I also love the story of Fisher, that, that he went away for a little while and then he came back and became a productive Texan. So, there you go. Things can be forgiven. Man. Yep. A lot of uh, back and forth in the uh, early days of Texas, um, you know, revolving around the Mexican uh, government and their independence and then fluctuating back and forth across multiple constitutions. So, uh, yeah, tumultuous early years of Texas. Crazy. And that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, 
Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. And keep watching the skies because texaspodcast.fm.fm, just like your grandpa's old radio, will be coming soon. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sharma, two ends. And I'm Scott Eckes. If you love this show, and you know you do, and you love Texas history, which you know you do, get out there and tell a friend about what we do. Turn them on, help them to listen to the show, and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. Um, and if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>